I am Sue. Very grateful member of the Al Anon family groups because today I love an alcoholic. And uh, we're leading on step two tonight. It doesn't mean that I've been restored to sanity some. I don't know if we all ever become totally restored to sanity, but I'm so much better than I used to be. All right, step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. The principle of step two is power. And uh, in this uh, step meeting, we use both the AA and the Al-Anon 12 and 12 for the steps only. And so I will be referring to both of those books from time to time, and I'll tell you which book I'm in and what page. Uh, both of these books uh, talk about how intelligence is not our answer, but it could be our enemy. Reason being is that you can be too smart and miss this program, but you can never be too dumb to get it. <laughs> A lot of people say, well, I have degrees. Well, so do thermometers, and you know where they stick them? <laughs> okay. <laughs> In uh, the insanity of step two is to go back. The insanity of step two while we're in this program is to go back to the way we used to be, which is crazy. Uh, this step is to help us to get sane and stay sane. Uh, but it doesn't guarantee that we won't ever go back to the insanity. Uh, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about that we have a daily reprieve. So if I don't keep practicing these principles and applying these steps to every situation in my life, I will go back down through the steps until I'm back in the insanity and I am back having power and my life will be unmanageable. Okay? Last week we went over step one and we talked about the we in the step one, which the we in step one takes us to the power in step two. Because without the we, I would have never found the power. I had to, uh, my sponsor was the uh, first indication to me that, uh, and first tool that I picked up in this program that got me into these steps to let me look at me. Being willing to let another human being, which is the power, help me to first, is first indication of being restored to sanity. I ask another human being to help me, is the first indication of being restored to sanity. Yet, uh, I forget which book it is, it talks about the butts, yeah but, and the other day in, uh, one of the meditation books that I read, it talked about the but being the word for the devil. The devil uses the word but to uh, get us back into the insanity of the disease of alcoholism. So taking step one, the Al-Anon book, it says taking step one brought us face to face with the truth. We were not 
equal to the task of changing any other human being. We needed more than our human experience and intelligence to solve the problems of living, especially of living with an alcoholic, whether they're still drinking or not. And I believe what they're talking about there is a sponsor. And it takes us right back to the we. Because my best ideas got me here. The words came to believe meant a gradual awakening to the reality of a higher power in our lives. It's uh, becoming uh, honest, open-minded, and willing. It's the how of this program. And that's a gradual awakening that we go through. And to get to that spot, I had to look at the things that I was doing, the things that I went through before getting here that uh, I needed to know why I needed to be restored to sanity. What did I really do that was insane? And there's so many instances in my life before I got to this program that I can point out that just were so insane there had to be a power that was taken care of us or I wouldn't be here today. Yeah. Uh, the first one that I looked at that came to mind when I was writing this step for my sponsor is that um, uh, we were going dirt bike riding and camping one weekend and we went out to um, out by Lake Paris or over by Hemet and we was going up the back way and we was going up the mountains and it, we never left camping for camping before midnight. It's just the way it was. Because we had to check all the gear and we had to load all the stuff and usually about um, 10, 30, 11 o'clock we had to change the oil in the truck. <laughs> or we had to go get a new tire for the truck. We had to do a lot of things. And so when we were God, I took off so many Fridays to sit around waiting on him. <laughs> and then we'd leave at midnight. So uh, that's insane on its own to think, okay, I'm going to take today off. We're going to you know, load up the camper, and we'll be out of here by noon. <laughs> Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results is the definition of insanity. So anyway, we were out, and we was going up the mountain, and the road, and we had the pickup with the cab over camper on it, and we had a trailer with motor dirt bikes on it. And the road just kept getting more and more narrow. And finally my husband said, take this lantern and walk up there and see if you can see how much further this road goes. And uh, so I did. And it wasn't any further from from me to Wendy right here that I walked up there and it just fell off a cliff. Now there had to be some kind of power taking care of us to keep us from just driving off that cliff. You know, uh, and it was the alcoholic that suggested doing that. You know, So what I got to see out of the whole thing is that uh, there was a power working in my husband's life too. He wasn't always crazy like I thought he was. I mean, he had some sense. I thought that because he was drunk, he was crazy and stupid. 
And uh, so that little thing reminded me of that. Um, I was talking to one of the ladies that I sponsor, and last week I talked about the anniversary cards and how he had uh, taken the anniversary cards that I bought and recreated them and making them cards for me and was very creative about doing that and how much time it took. And uh, for him to spend that kind of time on me is awesome to me today. Alcoholics, what I've accepted about the disease of alcoholism is not only are we selfish and self-centered, but the alcoholic is really selfish and self-centered. And uh, for an alcoholic to take that kind of time, because he was sick and he didn't go get a card, he probably wouldn't have if he'd been well. But I accept that about him today. And uh, I was really impressed with those cards, and I just I laughed like crazy. And I've shown them to a lot of the girls, and they're funny. They're really funny. But the thing that I've come to realize is um, this last summer when my husband went to Sturgis, uh, he bought me a fur coat. And uh, it was for nothing. I mean, he was up there, he saw it, he thought I'd like it, and he bought it for me, and he brought it home, and it was a gift. Well, never mind the fact that uh, it was a month before my birthday, two months before our anniversary, but what I understand today about the alcoholic is that he has impulses where he likes to do things in his time, and uh, not particularly on a date or at a certain time. And... Uh, I know that he paid enough for that coat that it could be my birthday present, my anniversary present, my Christmas present, my Thanksgiving present, any present I want it to be. So a lot of the insanity that I came in here with was not giving that man credit for things that he did because it wasn't on my time. He, was, he tried doing things for me, but I didn't appreciate him because it wasn't on my time my day, whatever that is, you know. And so today, I mean, I get things from him all the time that's just for nothing. And uh, I remember when we lived in Oklahoma, our neighbor, uh, they got new carpet. And it was in March. No, it was in June, and they got new carpet. And uh, I asked her, and they didn't drink or nothing. They were just normal, regular people. And I said, uh, great, what's the occasion? She said, my birthday. And I said, great, I didn't know when your birthday was. She said, it was in March. And I said, so your carpet was your birthday present? She goes, yeah. I said, but it was, this is June. She goes, I know, but it's his idea now, so that's a gift. <laughs> she said, we thought about it in March. And she could become grateful and knew those kind of things, being so-called normal, that I had to come here to find out and, have, and to learn stuff, you know. And it just amazes me that there's people out there that know how to deal with life on life's terms, and I have to come in here and give up all the rules that I've made and uh, get reprogrammed in my head, reprogram this computer up here, and uh, I have to dump it, and then I come to meetings and I reload. 
I download everything in these meetings. And, and that's leading me to more sanity in my life. It takes away all the piddly things. You know, I talked to, uh, Keith and I talked to our daughter today, and uh, her and her husband have been going through a thing for about a year that she thought he didn't want her to go to Al-Anon because she's going to three meetings a night or a week at night. And he has he's in the restaurant business and works at night. And so she, uh, when she was here in June, she felt like, because she's affected with the disease of alcoholism, he's not. He's so-called normal and a very good man. I mean, he has a temper. He's Italian, so it goes along with the territory. But she thought she was going to have to pick Alan on her, her marriage. And this last month when they talked about it, he said, I'm not asking you to not go. You have daytime meetings that you go to. And he said, I work at night. And he said, and you go off at night. And he said, that leaves our daughter without a parent at home to take care of her at night. She has no parent here. And he said, all I'm asking you to do is not go anywhere at night. And uh, he said, three nights a week is too much. And she said, well, I'm not going to be a prisoner in my own home. I'm going to go at night. And he said, one night meeting a month. And she said, you think three nights a week is too much, and I think one a month is not enough. So they decided she could go to one night meeting a week. And it's a compromise. He knew how to do that with her. And she had been thinking before then it was either or, you know, black or white. And we come in here, and the sanity that we gain in this program allows us to realize that we have to work with others, our spouses or whoever it is, to get to a rational point that's in agreement for everybody, you know, to discuss it and, and, uh, and work it out. And uh, we don't know how to do that before we get here. And one of the neat things is, is that today when we talked to her, she was talking to some of the girls that she sponsors, and they were whining about just little piddly-ass stuff, and she's, and she's starting to ask them. And she's going to two meetings a week. And uh, she asked them, how many meetings a week are you going to? And they go to four or six meetings a week. And she said, and you're pissed off about this? You're going to four to six meetings a week, and you're getting upset over this piddly stuff? She said, I'm going to two meetings a week. I go in my meetings, and I sit down, and I shut up, and I listen for the solution. And I come home, and I apply it to my life. She goes, now, what's your problem? You're going to two and three times as meetings a week as I am, and you're learning nothing. What is your purpose there? Have you turned this into a social event? instead of a learning experience of how to deal with life? And I'm going, yay, Simone. And so what she thought was going to be her detriment has made her stronger. And isn't that the way with everything that we go through? If we surrender, and step two is a lot about surrender, if we surrender our good ideas, which is insanity, then what comes out of it is a good way of life. And that good way of life is sanity. And uh, 
I think she's a great example of this step right now. And then it talks further down on that page 13 in the Al-Anon book. It says, we too needed to change. It says, whether spouse, parent, child, or friend, many of us came to Al-Anon convinced that all of the insanity belonged exclusive to the alcoholic. I understand that. Because if he hadn't been drinking, I wouldn't have to act that way. You know, the restaurant scene that uh, I tell a lot in my story is a great example of that. We get, we got kicked out of restaurants because I was yelling and hollering at Keith because he wasn't drinking right. And he's just sitting there drinking. He wasn't saying anything to anybody. And I was screaming and yelling. And then when I'd holler at the waiter to come over and service, he'd say, you're not eating here because you don't know how to act. And he would point at me. And I'm thinking, you don't understand. If he wasn't drinking like that, I wouldn't have to act this way. Totally blaming the drunk for my actions. It is very important to me in my program that, and I'm very blessed because of the kind of sponsorship I had in the very beginning and still have today, this very hard-nosed, very rigid sponsorship, and believes that looking, when we do the inventory in the four-column method, and the last column is what part did I play, I've always had a sponsor that makes me look at what part I played. And I've done a lot of writing in this program. So the justification of my actions of why I did things while the alcoholic was drunk was total insanity. And I rationalized it by saying, he's a drunk. Don't you understand? I wouldn't act this way if he wasn't drunk. Well, it's totally the disease of alcoholism. We were both affected. Neither one of us could quit doing what we were doing because we didn't have any solutions. What's the right way to act in a restaurant when your husband's sitting there drinking out of the craft, sitting there going, do, 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 do. He really ain't doing that. And letting everybody look at him. And me getting embarrassed? Give me a break. He's not going to make me look bad. Self-seeking, self-righteous. And bottom line, how many people were looking at him? Me? (laughs) There was at least one in there that had total focus on that guy. He didn't have a chance. Nobody else paid attention to this because he was being quiet about it. I'm the one that was crazy. So a lot of those circumstances... Just uh, in the insanity that I lived with, it was totally, he would do one thing, and I knew it was wrong, and I knew he'd done it, and then when I'd tell him, don't do that anymore, he'd say, I didn't do that. Yeah, you did. I saw you. Now, see, you must be out of your mind. And I'd go, God, I thought I saw him do that. Because I believed that he would not lie to me. I believed, I wanted to believe, every time there was a sober period, the problem had gone away. Where have we read that? When in fact it had not. He wasn't drinking that day, but he still had alcohol in his system. Or he hadn't drank yet that day. The insanity was still there. And I doubted myself. And I wasn't drinking at all. But because he said so, I had to believe it. Otherwise, I'm crazy. 
because he's telling me I am. Isn't he right? And so the neat thing that one of the things that this program has taught me is nobody can tell me what I'm thinking, nobody, whether it's right or wrong. Nobody can see in, in my head. No, I don't have a computer screen people can read. I have actions, body language, and expressions, and that kind of stuff that can pretty much tell you what I'm pissed off about something, you know. But you can't really tell what I'm thinking unless you've sponsored me and you know me inside and out and say, ooh, I noticed those patterns. Here they come again. That's what a sponsor says. You know, and so I have to look at that. And the other thing is, is that nobody can tell me how I feel. He can't tell me. No, you don't feel that way anymore. And I used to say, yeah, I do. And he'd say, no, you don't. And I think I thought I did. <laughs> Maybe I don't feel that way. You know? And then I get more angry and more angry because I got these... You know, I got these feelings going on inside of me, and my head's saying, you don't feel that way, and it's like a tornado going on inside of there. Because they don't match. The head and the gut don't match. And I can't figure out which one's right. Because I don't know. Because the disease of alcoholism constantly wants me to be baffled. Constantly wants me to be baffled and to believe the unbelievable. Have a bottle sitting right in front of him and say, no, I'm not drinking. It's still full. Never mind the fact that he had one in the bathroom he was nipping on every time he goes to the bathroom. He hadn't drank out of this one, but he's drunk. How's that bottle staying full and he's drunk? I remember one time we'd gone camping down at San Felipe, and I told him, don't drink on the way home. I do not like you drinking and driving. You've drank enough for the weekend. I don't want you drinking anything all the way home. And I sat in the cab of that pickup right next to him and watched him all the way home. And he was drunker than a skunk when we pulled up in the driveway. And I don't to this day know how he did that. <laughs> now that's crazy to spend that whole day watching to see if somebody's doing it. And they are. When did he do that? When did he do that? How did he do that? That's insane to be so consumed with someone else that I'm not even thinking about me or my daughter. You know, if she wants anything, you know, leave me alone. I'm busy. That's insane. Because what if she's hurt herself or what if she needs something? What if she wants to eat? My daughter said that she said... Uh, I'll tell you how much insanity I have not been restored to, Mom. She said, uh, yesterday Nicole was acting up, and she said she's been having a pattern of talking back to me, and I'm trying to break her of that. And she said, I've been real consistent about mean what I say and say what I mean, but don't say it mean. And she said, I'm just getting so frustrated with her because she said, you know how kids do. They push you and push you and push you to see if they can get you to a breaking point. She said, so we're in the car and Nicole's talking back to me and she's acting up. And uh, Simone said she asked her, what do you think your punishment should be when you get home? She said, I'm asking a five-year-old, what do you think your punishment should be when you get home? 
And Nicole said, I don't know, put me to bed without dinner. And Simone said, okay. So they get home, and Simone said, go get ready for bed. Nicole goes, why? And she said, the insane part was that I asked the five-year-old, what should your punishment be? And she said, but she told me. Now, the sanity I've been restored to is that I backed it up. She told, I asked her, she told me, and I had to hang in there with it. And she said, so I told her, go get ready for bed. And she goes, why? I'm hungry. I need to eat. Simone said, no, you told me that your punishment should be to go to bed without dinner. And she said, Nicole looked right at me and said, you're not going to do that. And Simone said, watch. And she had to back it up. Now, I don't know. My granddaughter has all the character defects of her grandpa, her grandma, <laughs> her mother, and her father. Very strong-willed little girl. So she goes, gets ready for bed, and she's up in her bedroom, and she cries and cries and cries for a while, and Simone lets her. Pretty soon she quits crying, and Simone... Uh, peeked in her room and she's laying on her bed and she's fiddling with her books and some paper and stuff and uh, so pretty soon Nicole comes in Simone's bedroom and she's made this little basket out of construction paper and she goes here mommy here's a basket for your onions <laughs> Simone said I don't know why onions but Here's a basket for your onions, Mommy, and I love you very much. I love to make things for you. <laughs> and I'm hungry. <laughs> and, uh, and Simone's, uh, the reason she gotten in trouble, I guess, is because they'd gone by the bakery and gotten some bread and stuff, and Nicole had gotten in there and taken a bite out of each bread. <laughs> So that's why she was going to bed. So Simone knew she wasn't going to starve to death. She was full of bread. And uh, so Simone said, no, you're back to bed. Yeah, and she said she didn't cry anymore. She went back to bed. So it's just an example of how constant we have. When I got to this program, my husband, my daughter did not trust me. They did not trust, I mean, I was, I was the queen of idle threats. Now, at that time, telling Simone, clean up your bedroom. She didn't clean it up the way I thought she should. So she didn't appreciate her room and her bed. She had a beautiful canopy bed and all that kind of stuff. And she didn't appreciate nothing in there, none of her toys, none of her clothes, nothing. You don't appreciate nothing we do for you. And, I mean, I was screaming at her. And because um, when I went in there, she said it was clean, and she just pushed everything under her bed. And so I went and got trash bags. And I started pulling all that stuff out from under her bed and throwing it in the trash bags, clothes, toys, everything, and yelling at her how she didn't appreciate nothing and hauling it out to the trash. And that little girl's standing there the whole time, Mommy, please don't throw my stuff out. And I'm constantly yelling at her, telling her how she doesn't appreciate a damn thing. And then, to top it off, if that's not enough, she has to sleep in the hallway in her sleeping bag for the next month. 
because she doesn't appreciate nothing. You think that's the same way to raise a child? To teach them a lesson? And the insanity of that is I said a month. I couldn't hang in there for a month. I mean, after a week, she was getting up in the mornings all cheery, rolling up her sleeping bag, tossing it in her bedroom, and getting ready and off to school. And she was tickled to death. She didn't have to make her bed or nothing. It was easy. (laughs) And she was happy, and I was miserable. Because I'd see that poor child in the hallway when I'd go to bed at night. That's not sanity. Not showing her. And I remember when I got the program and I shared some of that stuff with my sponsor and she said when she makes her bed did it ever dawn on you that at her age it's the best she can do it's not the way you make it but it's the way she makes it and it's her bed when she makes her bed and you go in there and tear it up because it's not made right you're tearing down her self-worth and her dignity if she makes her bed Say, that's good. And I started doing that in the program with her. And uh, she always had a sloppy bedroom from the day she left our house. Her bedroom was horrible. I remember one day, perfect heaven to me, my sponsor had come over to our house for the first time after we moved into this other house. And uh, she came over. We was going to a meeting together, and, she, and I wanted to show her around the house. And we get upstairs to Simone's bedroom. Simone's got clothes all over the bedroom. And uh, I said, and this is Simone's room. And Simone's in there sorting her clothes around. And uh, she tells my sponsor, she said, the clothes on the bed are clean, and the ones on the floor are the dirty ones I'm getting ready to launder. And my sponsor said, I would go, yeah. She said, oh, good, Simone. I'm glad you sleep with the clean clothes. (laughs) And so what I had to do, if I got mad at her about her bedroom, I could only be mad at her in her bedroom. When she came downstairs to the kitchen or the TV room or the living room, I couldn't be mad at her in there. I had to keep... The problem where the problem belonged, and I couldn't spread it out into every other area. And she came downstairs one day, and I'd been up in her bedroom and telling her how mad I was at about the way she did her room and everything. And then when she came downstairs, I was nice to her. She said, Mom, I don't understand, you know, what's going on with you. She said, you was mad at me a while ago, and now you're treating me nice. I said, I was mad at you in your bedroom because your bedroom's not cleaned up. I don't have a problem with you in the kitchen. And I'm going to learn to separate the anger and the problem and put it where it's appropriate. And she goes, that's great. (laughs) I mean, that's how I had to start working on growing, which is called sanity, is put it in the right places instead of carrying it all over everywhere, taking it to the kitchen, taking it to the TV room, taking it to work, telling everybody at work about it, you know, telling all my friends about it, telling everybody every time I open my mouth about it. I had to keep it in its proper perspective because every time I talked about it, it got bigger and bigger and I got madder and madder. And then she was a a poop butt and I didn't like her and she's my own daughter and I don't respect her and she just doesn't appreciate nothing and everything's blown out of proportion all over again. And so I had to keep 
everything in the proper place. And uh, I had to finally tell her, I'm going to just, uh, when we ground you, it's just going to be one day at a time. If I ask you to do something, you say you'll do it, and then you don't do it, then you're grounded tomorrow and tomorrow only. We're going to work this like we do this program, one day at a time. And uh, she said, so what if I don't do it the next day? And I said, then you're grounded one more day. We're going to do this program one day at a time. Or I'm not going to ground you forever anymore. You can't live with that, and I can't live with that. I cannot give you a punishment that's going to be worse on me than it is on you. And that's what I always did. And uh, and I had to learn to ask her if she would do things for me. And if she said yes, then I would say, when can I expect for you to have that done? And she'd tell me. And I'd say, okay. If I asked her to do something for me and she said no, then I had to do it myself. Because the, the war was over. Because both of us were working on being restored to sanity because she was in Alateen and trying to work a program for herself. And uh, it started working for us like that. It started working for us real good like that. I remember one time we was all getting ready. Keith and I was getting ready. I fixed dinner. We was getting ready to go to a meeting. And I said, Simone, would you mind doing the dishes for me? And she said, no, I will. And I said, what time can I expect to have those dishes done? She said, 10 p.m. And it was on a Saturday, and it was about 5 o'clock. Because we'd eaten dinner, and we was getting ready to go to a meeting. And she's saying she's going to do the dishes by 10 p.m., and she's not going anywhere. But I had to accept it. And we went to our meeting, and we got home from our meeting about uh, 9.30, and the dishes weren't done. I looked at the clock, it's 9.30. I can't say anything because she said 10 p.m. And she's watching TV. And at 5 till 10, she got up and she had the dishes done in five minutes. But what all of that did for Simone and I is it brought trust into our relationship. It brought trust into our relationship. The things that went on with my husband and I, uh, of him telling me, I had to tell him that, uh, like I went to uh, a world service meeting one Saturday and I told him I'd be home by four o'clock and they were having a big discussion and vote on something and it was very obvious to me that I wasn't going to be home until about six o'clock, that world service probably end at 4.30 or five. And so I went to the payphone and I called Keith. And I said, babe, world services last and longer than we thought it would, and uh, they're getting ready to vote, and I probably won't be home till 6 o'clock. And I might have gotten home before 6 o'clock, but I knew if I told him 6 o'clock, I wouldn't be late. Okay? So there'd be no argument going on but with that. I gave myself some time in there. And I remember one of my Al-Anon friends newcomers that came in with me walked past and she said, oh, are you having to call and check in? And I wanted to blow her off. Boy, I wanted to flip her the bird big time. But what I said to her is, no, I'm trying to learn how to be courteous. What a big step towards sanity for me is being courteous to the people that I live with. 
instead of ranting and raving and not calling and not getting home till late and keeps going, why didn't you call? You know, well, I was doing my thing. You know, I was in Al-Anon, you know, so don't be pissed off. You know, I was busy. I'm working a program. It doesn't matter where I'm at. I've got to be courteous to the people that I live with. So those kind of things started working in our home. Upon reflection, page 15, we decided whether our thoughts, words, and actions were those of well-balanced, reasonable people. (laughs) Only if you make my decision. If we realized they were not, then we needed help. The kind of spiritual help to be found in Al-Anon. And I believe what they're talking about is the help of listening in meetings and talking to sponsors. Once we learned to see our situation as it really was, that's really important to me, as it really was, not as Sue sees it, but what's reality. And a while ago I was talking about nobody can tell me how I feel anymore. What I've learned about feelings is that I might not feel good, but they're not the facts. Um, Example. I'm trying to think of a good example. It's like if I missed days at work and I was being paid hourly and I didn't get paid for those hours. It doesn't I don't feel good about that, but the fact is is that the company policy says you don't get paid if you're not here. Do you see the difference? I can have feelings, but they don't match the facts. And all of that arrogance and stuff comes back. So I've got to be careful of what I think about things. And what I've learned in this step, there's a lot in this book about humility in both the AA and the Al-Anon book. Um, It talks a lot about self-reliant, which is old ideas to me. I can't be self-reliant. I have to call in this power greater than me. Beginning, it was a sponsor. But one of the things that I became grateful for in looking at this step is I had said so many prayers. So many prayers. God, just let him die out there, but don't let him kill anybody else. God, just make me sick enough to go to the hospital, but not sick enough to die, because I just wanted to check out. And what I've learned with this step is thank God for unanswered prayers. Thank God for unanswered prayers. Before I met Keith, I made a lot of prayers about a lot of guys. And there was an instance in the program, this kid that was my boyfriend in high school, and he was so good looking in high school. We used to go on hay rides together, and oh my God, I was just uh, a little uh, dingy over him. And uh, then after I left high school and got, and uh, went to that unwed mother's home and came back, he'd gone on to college, and then that's when I met Keith, and then Keith and I have been together ever since. But a few years ago, uh, I went to Oklahoma, and I shared at a conference. This guy's name was Gary Ratliff. And after I shared at the conference, this guy came up to me, and he said, didn't your maiden name used to be McKee? And I said, yeah. He said, Sue, I'm Gary Ratliff. 
and went, oh my God. <laughs> and he said, it's so good. I mean, like, he said, boy, man, after, you know, you left Parrot and you really went through some stuff, didn't you? <laughs> and he introduced me to his wife and I introduced his wife to Keith and we stood there and talked for a while and we got back to the room. And Keith said, hmm, your old boyfriend, huh? And Keith knew his sister, and his sister was really pretty. And uh, he said, you really did like him, huh? And I said, yeah, but thank God for unanswered prayers. He said, why? And I said, because he's ugly now. (laughs) (laughs) And he was, and he stayed short. (laughs) He never grew up. So I knew there was a power taking care of me. (laughs) So we look back at little dumb stuff, but we look back most of all at the insanity. We gotta laugh at some of this stuff and make, and uh, it's the only thing that takes the tears away in the very beginning. When uh, my sponsor heard me laughing at myself about a story I'd told on myself, she says, you're getting well. When I learned to laugh at me, I'm getting better because I'm not taking all that old stuff so serious. The beginning of the end of his old life and the beginning of his urgency into a new one. And when I started this program, I started this program with an urgency that you couldn't believe because I wanted it all and I wanted it right now. And I took my two biggest character defects, greed and impatience. And I said, I want it all, and I want it now. And I knew that the more I went to meetings, the more I would get, and the faster I would start getting better. And so that's the way I used those two character defects in the beginning. Accepting disappointments often related to alcoholism with calm poise save wear and tear on the nerves as well as demonstrating our confidence that things ultimately worked out as they were meant to. This was by no means weak resignation, but intelligent recognition of the fact that life had experiences for us, some welcome, some not, but all of them offering insights. And so what I've learned from this step is that all of the things, all of the insanity that I went through before I got to this program were necessary for me. Every one of the insane things that I did, trying to kill the family, trying to kill Keith, trying to kill myself, uh, all of those things were necessary in order to find you in order for me to find the sponsor to guide me through these steps, in order for me to find my God. Anything less than what it took for me to get here would not have been enough. Because today I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, if anything less that had happened to me, I wouldn't have made it here. And I know that a lot of people don't have to go down the scale as far as I went, with all the violence and, and 
the insanity that I went through. Um, but it's what it took to get me here. Only you know what it takes to get you here and to make you stay here. Don't forget. If you leave this program, my sponsor used to say it's so perfect. She said, if you want to uh, leave, you can. But, and we will refund your misery immediately. And that's what happens. Because people forget where they came from. They forget who they were before we, they got here. And they take this thing for granted. And it becomes a social event. Or it becomes something to do to get away from the drunk. Or it becomes something to do because I don't have anything else to do. Or because I don't want to do that. And uh, if I can go to meetings, a lot of people use meetings to get rid of responsibilities because I'm in too many meetings. I can't take care of that kind of stuff. So what this program, the sanity of this program is that eventually we will grow to the point that we will be able to have balance in our lives, that we don't have to be running all over, helter skelter, do this, do that, I've got to do it all right now, blah, blah, blah. And when I retired from work, I had to learn. I remember one day I called my sponsor, and I was just so tired. And she goes, uh, and at that time, it was before I had my hip surgery. She said, what is wrong with you? It sounds like you've been running. And I said, I cleaned house today. She said, Sue, you retired. You don't have to do it all in one day anymore. I'm like, oh, whoa. I thought you did. And I said, yeah, but if I don't do it all in one day and I do a little bit every day, then by the time I get the last thing done, the first thing needs to be done again. Yeah. I still have that kind of mentality, but I'm not as in big a hurry to do it now. In helping ourselves, we helped others to be restored to sanity. Then they were better able to make their own decisions. The only thing that we have to share with each other is our experiences. I knew, and I've shared this many times with people that I sponsor, many years, Keith and I would take turns leaving each other. His turn one weekend, mine the next weekend. Put him in jail, put him in the nut ward, I'm, he's out of there, you know, and I'm still obsessed. I mean, I'd put him in the nut ward down at UCI and get a motel room right across the street and stay up all night watching the front door of that hospital to make sure he didn't get out. <laughs> Just because he was gone didn't make me sane. So I have to look at all the things that brought me here. But I know that I hit a bottom. And I knew that uh, when that happened, I looked at Keith, and I don't ever want to forget it. I said, I don't love you anymore, but I don't hate you either. I felt nothing. I was just so numb. And I said, if you want to be a skid row bum, then you can, because that's what I thought happened to drunks. But Simone and I ain't going any further with you. And I said it with a peace and calmness I had never experienced before. 
and I knew it was timing. I knew it was the right time. So if you're going through dilemmas like that, do I or don't I, work with your sponsor, write about it, because you're in the program trying to make these kinds of decisions. Don't ever, ever ask your sponsor, should I kick them out? It's nobody's responsibility but yours. You have to make that decision. The only reason people want somebody else to make those decisions for them is because if it doesn't work out, then they can say, look, what you did to me. Because the disease of alcoholism wants to blame everybody else. It does not want to be responsible. It does not want to do the right thing. And even if it's the wrong decision, it's a decision. And what I learned in the program is making a decision does not mean forever. That's being restored to sanity. I can make a decision today that I'm not going to do something. And then after I think about it, pray about it, talk to my sponsor about it, maybe write about it, I might have made the wrong decision. And I can change that decision. One of the things that I relate to sanity with is that uh, I make plans, but I don't live in the plan. It's like right now, uh, people in this group are making plans to go to the World Conference in Toronto, Canada in July the 4th, 19, or 2005. We're making plans to do that. We're paying on it and the whole bit. But we're not, every day I'm not going, I'm going to Toronto, I'm going to Toronto. Yeah. And it's not like, I'm going to my meeting tonight. Like, oh, i got to go to my meeting, but when I'm, i got to start figuring out what I'm going to take to Toronto. And it's October. It's October. Yeah. So... Uh, then I went through a period, it's so funny talking about that, then I went through a period, and my family didn't like this one at all. Well, what are you going to do about that? And I'd say, I don't know, I'm living in the now. No, we've got to make a decision on this, Sue, because we've got to do this next week if we're going to do it. No, I'm living in the now. One day at a time. So when are you going to let me know? Soon. <laughs> I love telling the alcoholic that today. Soon. But we've been restored to more sanity since that. <laughs> Stop fighting and practice the rest of the program as enthusiastically as I can. You look up the word enthusiasm and it means God within. So anytime you're going through anything and you feel super enthusiastic about it, it's because you're in God consciousness. Good things. Good things happen around here. With sponsorship, the thing that I need to be reminded of in this step is that my sponsor has more time than me which highly indicates she's a lot smarter in recovery than I am. And I don't debate with her. I mean, 
I would be afraid to tell my sponsor, yeah, but, oh my God. I don't know how she'd react to that. Probably click. I don't think she'd given, even give me the time of day to say, what? I think she'd just hang up on me. And I don't debate those things with her. You know why? Because I respect her time, and I ex- respect her experience with time and with recovery in this program. I have seen, I've known her ever since I've come in this program, I have seen the path that her family goes down. They are all in recovery. Their grandkids are now in recovery. Now, my husband went to an AA meeting the other night, last Wednesday night, and he came home and he was really upset because there were a lot of guys in that meeting that are slippers. They're in and out and in and out. And uh, they were talking about their wives being crazy and insane, and one guy mentioned his uh, daughters out on the streets. Yeah. And we've known these people a long time. They have time, more time than Keith and I in the program. And now my grandkids are out on the streets. These are people that when we got in the program and we made our daughter go to Alateen, they said, you're being too hard on her. And so far today, I'm grateful for, our daughter is working a program of Al-Anon. She's made decisions to not do what it takes to end up in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. She's known since she was 13 years old that she had choices, but we were being too hard on her. And these people in this AA meeting last night were talking about their kids, same age as our daughter, more time in the program than we have. Of my daughter and my son did this, and now so are my grandchildren. He said not one word about family recovery. Not one word. And he said, I could not sit there and act like I was part of that. And he spoke up and he said, my wife has been in the program of Al-Anon for over 28 years and my daughter has been in the program, started out in Alateen and transitioned in the program of Al-Anon and she has 28 years of recovery in the program also in Al-Anon through Alateen. And this one guy goes, well, let's put that in the Genesis World Record book. Isn't it sad? Isn't it sad? I know there's a lot of people in this room that got married in this program young, had children in this program. You are taking your children to preteen and alateen. So no matter what decisions they make when they get older, they will know they have choices. And you have carried the message of recovery into your home. I know that there's parents in here that didn't find the program until after their kids were on the streets because you didn't know about recovery before. And what I understand about that is that you can be an example to your kids or to any other person that you love by coming to this program and being an example, showing of the change 
in your life that this program has made to not act crazy or insane in your home or in your life and then let them see that there's another way to live and be an attraction to them. Like, Mom, you're not yelling at me anymore. You're not bailing me out of jail anymore. What's happened to you? I'm letting you grow up, babe. I'm letting you be responsible for yourself. I love you. Jack Sullivan used to say it so well. He was one of my husband's sponsors before he died. His, uh, he would go to jail and his, he'd call his dad. And his dad, he's saying, when are you going to come and bail me out? And his dad would say, oh, son, I don't think you need to worry about that. And he'd hang up on him. And they started getting bills from bill collectors. And Jack's down in Skid Row sleeping in a cardboard box. And his dad started getting his bills at his house for Jack. And so his dad told the bill collectors where he was living. And the bill collector, one of the bill collectors, went down there one day and he was in his box. And he hears this on his box. And he opens the flap, and this bill collector's standing there, and he said, Son, I think you're in trouble. <laughs> Everybody would roar when Jack would tell that story. He said, But my dad wouldn't bail me out. And he said, When I knew I couldn't take advantage of my dad anymore, I found help for myself. When I knew I couldn't take advantage of other people anymore, that they were tired of buying my words of insanity, they were tired of me complaining, they were tired of the way I was acting around them, we lost all of our friends. We had some people coming over, come over to our house one time, and Keith and I was having a fight. They rang the doorbell, Keith opened the door, and the vacuum sweeper went flying out the door past their heads. And they said, well, we don't think this is a good time to be here. <laughs> they never came back, nor did they ever invite us back to their home. We went out to dinner with some people one time over in Placentia. And Keith wasn't acting right, and I started yelling at him, and they threw us out of the restroom. We were with these other people. And Keith started off walking. You know that park over there on Bradford and, and Chapman? He walked across that park to get away from me. But I was in a pin station wagon, a little bit smaller than a regular car. You can drive those kind of cars in parks. <laughs> Not a problem. I'll meet you at the gate. They thought I was crazy because I was driving around in the park and when he had run the other way, I'd do donuts and dig up the grass. Not a problem. He can't get away from me. I'll show him. Not a problem. 
Those people quit asking us to go out to dinner with them. <laughs> Went to a bar over on uh, Placentia in Chapman called the Birdcage. We were in there one night with these people just having drinks. We'd had dinner at the house and we decided to go have drinks. And I was in sorority with that lady and her husband was a drunk, still is, bless his heart, he's still alive and looks a hundred years old. Saw him about two years ago in the grocery store. But we're sitting there having drinks and some guy joined us, like, come on, come on, join us, you know. He was sitting by himself. That's unacceptable for drunks. And uh, this guy came and sat down with us. And the guy started talking to him and Keith said something about um, my dad's a lawyer. And the guy said, lawyer. And Keith thought the guy said, liar. <laughs> and he looked at Blaine, the guy that we was with, and said, did you hear that crap? Blaine said, yeah, I did. Nobody talks to my friends that way. The booth went up in the air. <coughs> And they started having a fight in there like you see in those old cowboy movies where they're tearing everything up. And Joyce and I ran out and got in the car. The guys came, brought the fight out into the parking lot. We got the lights on them and we're honking, get in the car, get in the car, the cops are coming. And they finally get in the car and they just beat the holy tar out of that man. And her and I take off, lay rubber, in that parking lot, take off and go to their house. And when we got there, they asked us to get in our own car and to please leave. They didn't want to be around. Blaine doesn't act that way when he's not with Keith. Now, how in the hell can that bitch say that about my husband? <laughs> Now, is that sane? <laughs> they weren't our friends anymore. So I'm grateful that we ran out of everything before we got here. Because we didn't have to make up excuses to people of why we couldn't go to their parties and why we couldn't this and why we couldn't that because we made new friends in Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. And we were on the same page with everybody we knew. And it supported our recovery. And I'll forever be grateful for that. And we were with people that would pull our covers when we would uh, act silly and stuff around them. And uh, I loved doing things with people in the program. We went out to dinner with this one couple one night, and this guy, he'd been sober for like 15 years. We were new. And we'd gone out to dinner with him before, and Bud was the kind of guy, he says, we're going to go to this restaurant. You've never been to this restaurant. We're going to go to this restaurant. So we'd get there, and he said, this is what you need to order. He'd order for everybody because he knew what he liked there. And he said uh, one night, he said, I don't want to go to dinner with Bud anymore. He's so controlling. He picks a restaurant. He tells you what you're going to eat when you get there. You get in the car. He takes you to the meeting. And then he says when we're leaving the meeting. And then he takes you home and says good night. He controls the whole night. I said, God, I love it. I don't have to make any decisions when I'm with Bud. <laughs> perception. It's all perception. I loved 
turning my life and my will over to the people in this program to plug into the power. And that power has gotten stronger and stronger every day of my life since I've been here. In helping ourselves, we help others to be restored to sanity. Then they were better able to make their own decisions, just like I was. Thank you very much.